over to my computer. Hello and welcome, welcome, welcome to the 58th episode of PEM Podcast, the Psychic Eye Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Victoria Laurie, with my schmabulous co-host, Sandy. And today, I'm so fucking excited. Uh, today, we have Amy Blackthorne, who is a just a very dear, lovely friend of mine. We've known each other a while. Uh, Amy is she has an incredible background. She is one of the most interesting, most talented people I've ever met in my entire life. Um, and so uh, we thought it would be wonderful to treat you, uh, our fabulous audience, to a little um, podcast version of her being here. Um, we'll get to her background soon, and I promise you it'll be worth the wait. She's really awesome. So Amy, just like say hello to the audience that will now become adoring fans. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. We'd, well, you know, this is like Sandy and I've been like chomping at the bit. We're so excited to have you here. Um, Cause she really is a badass, you guys like a fucking badass. And so she's, she's awesome. like the kind of person that like movies are made. This around. is true. Like Jennifer Lopez and the mother. Amy Blackthorne. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like those movies that they used to shove Angelina, skinny Angel, Angelina Jolie in, you know, with all that background and everything, um, uh, was like basically based on Amy's life. It's pretty cool. It's pretty freaking cool. So anyway. So right. Amy, you're, you're also, also an author. And I know that you have a book that you'd like to share with our audience that you have written as part of your series or collection. I have. I have five currently, and right now we're talking about Blackthorn's Protection Magic. It's a witch's guide to mental, mental and physical self-defense. Something we There's could all use. Badass stuff in it. Yeah. Witches, <laughs> non-witches. We could all use the help, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. And you know, I got to say, Amy, that I didn't dive into the book because I'm like, uh, I don't practice witchcraft, but it's really not like it's written for witches, but it's really written for women, honestly, right? Honestly, Would you say? it really is. There's so much in the middle, the chapter six, that was the really, it was the part I had to write first because I felt it was so important to make sure that people are so aware of their surroundings, able to handle any threat that comes their way that I, I definitely had to write that first before I could dive into anything else. I was really lucky because I was approaching this just as a magical book at first when I wrote the proposal for it. And my agent, my editor said, hey, why are you not talking about your your background in executive defense and executive protection your your background in security why are you not why are we not doing this yeah so she actually yeah, said the lead exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah no um we're, we're really geeked to have you here amy thank you so much for doing this for us um accommodating us this way and we plan to have amy back on occasion because um there's just so much to dive into. She's got a lot that she can bring to the table. So um, to mix it up a little bit, which is awesome. Well, so Amy, would you like to share a little bit about your business and um, how you how you make your money and what what it is that you'd like to let people know in our audience about you? Like define badass. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started in executive protection almost 20 years ago, and it's gotten to the point where that's that part of my life has sort of evolved its own history and its own lore <laughs> and I spent uh, so much time in executive protection that I I wound up getting a little overwhelmed and, and I needed some change so I went into I was the, I got a job as the head of security for two commercial properties here in Delaware and it was 35 floors of people it was a lot of moving parts so to speak so after a few years of doing that I just I needed a break I couldn't I couldn't be Amy the intuitive I couldn't be Amy the the witch I couldn't be myself, I had to be Amy, the head of security for, you know, I'm getting phone calls at two o'clock in the morning. There's, there's a fire in the building and you need to come put it out yourself. <laughs> so uh, I got to the point where I, I needed a break. And so I trained my replacement and I, I quit my job and I opened a tea shop. I, I was looking for the the next that's thing. that's like extreme one end from one end to the other right yes like, absolutely like no one no one is like i quit my job as as head of security for what 30 million dollar company or something like yeah. that right like yeah and opened a tea shop <laughs> like, <laughs> what <laughs> 
They go together. We promise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Amy made it go together. That's what she did. I, I really did. So my first day, I, I got about 15 blends. And after nine years in business, I have 110. Wow. Yeah. So I, I sent so many people your way. Yes. Um, you know, like when I'm doing a reading for someone and I know that they've like tapped into Western medicine and med Western medicine is doing what it can, but like, there's that under layer that I know you could supply some relief for. There's a, there's a brew that you could uh, supply some relief for. So I regularly send people to, and your website is again for our listening audience. Blackthornsbotanicals.com. You can find autographed yeah. books there. You can find tea, you can find perfume recipes that I've created and, and distributed. So a little bit of fun stuff. Anyway. There, there are soaps too and candles, right? Soaps yeah, and candles. Yes. Soaps yeah. and candles. Yeah. Uh, I started my first business when I, before I got into protection magic, I was sort of trying to figure out my way and I, I started making soaps and it was a lot of fun. But every time I went to a show, everybody on their brother had soap. I'm like, yeah. okay, let's, let's find something else to occupy the crafty niche and, and come back to it. So I was able to come back to it when I had a, a more specific idea of what I wanted to do. I wanted to have something that was, you know, I wanted to have soaps that were protection magic. I wanted to have soaps that in, imbued healing and calm and, and right. a sense of self-awareness. Right. So what is protection magic? Like what, if you had to define that, what is that? It's working in concert with your environment in order to make sure that you're the safest person you can be. I love that. Working in concert with your environment because there's so many, I mean, especially to women, right? Threats yes. can come from literally anywhere. Anywhere so. at any time. And that's the thing. If we could if we could schedule a car accident, no one ever would. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn. I had that on my agenda for later yes. on today. Shit. Absolutely going to get into a car wreck about six o'clock tonight. No, I mean, no one, no one would do that. That's that's not something that would happen. So it's definitely important to make sure that we're as aware of our surroundings as we can be. We, we incorporate. I talk about um, Cooper's color code for self awareness and awareness of your surroundings. And there's some we can incorporate magic with that. Magic has been described as spicy psychology. Oh, I, I understand like that I am lighting a candle, and that may be a candle that is we'll say programmed for protection magic, but even if the only thing that it does is bring my awareness to my surroundings because I did light that candle, guess it's what? Done it its job. It's yeah. done its job. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I love that we are talking about this for this podcast because Sandy and I are, you know, we do these on a weekly basis and we dive deep into these cases and that you can't help but feel so mm -hmm. much empathy for these women who wrong place, wrong time, time and time and time and time again. And um, violence against women, you would hope that as we, you know, as a civilization, as we got older, we wouldn't continue to have this kind of violence against women, but people have always encouraged violence against women mm -hmm. and it's not dying down. It's not lessening. No. Violence actually, in general, I think, has ratcheted up since the pandemic. It's yeah, you know, for sure. everybody's on edge. Well, since 2016. <laughs> I mean, let's call, call a spade a spade. <laughs> and let's call since an the pandemic, spade, an orange spade. Okay. Anyway, um, so the uh, today's case actually kicks off a series of the rich and famous. <laughs> Sorry, and uh, we thought this would be a great case to sh share, including Amy, because it has um, an element that potentially the victim might have been able to employ some of Amy's tactics to maybe maybe avoided what her outcome was. Or so might have been able to employ Amy in her executive yeah, protection. That, there's aspect. that too. Yeah. There's that too. Yeah. So um is there anything else that you'd like to share about you and your business, Amy, before no, we dive I'm, into the case? I'm just I'm so excited. I'm right now I'm working on book six and I've signed contracts for six, seven, and eight. Nice. Wow. Congratulations. So, thank you. I'm so, I'm so excited. I, I have wanted a book great validation, people. isn't it? <laughs> right. Is. Like we not only want the next one, but we want the two after that. <laughs> and then the option for three more after that. Yeah. That's, that's great. Well, what are um, your books? What are your books about? Is it a, a series? Is it individual books? This is a series. The first one is Blackthorns per Botanical Magic. And it was the idea came together as looking at our relationship with essential oils being sort of a gateway into the realm of plant magic, being mm. able to understand 
how we work with the the energies of those plants. If I am, if I've had a long day, I went and did a really incredible book signing, and I've just been on my feet for the last six hours, and my feet hurt, I'm, I'm exhausted. You know, I go into my kitchen and I say, what is it that I can do? And I think, no, I think I need some anti-inflammatory action here. Let's get some peppermint tea. And so I brew my tea and I have the drink. I go sit on the couch with my little dog and we, we have that moment. I compost the leaves. I finish my tea, but peppermint is still there. The, the spirit of peppermint endures. As long as people have peppermint in their garden or find it in the grocery store, they can identify it growing in the wild. As long as people know what peppermint is, the spirit of peppermint endures. What Blackthorns Botanical Magic does is allows people to connect with the overarching spirit of these plants as friends. Victoria and I, we, we, met, we meet at a party and I shake your hand. Hi, my name is Amy. Oh, you're, my name is Victoria. We get to know each other as people. We develop those friendships. The relationships with plant spirits are the same way. It's just you, the knowledge that you're getting is from a spirit instead of a, a physical person. So, so what a great way to look at that, right? Thank you. Like what a great way to just come into the world, right? Because we get caught up in our phones and email and work and all of that and pulling it back down to the plant level is just sort of the base root of ourselves. Um, I love that. I absolutely love that to develop a relationship with a, the spirit of the plant, like the I feel like we've lost a lot of that, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. Corn, you know, like, in the <laughs> basket, you know, like I'll do a tomato that tastes like cardboard, um, <laughs> you know, strawberries that don't taste like strawberries. They also taste like cardboard. So I love that. I love the drawing the back into the infusion of plant, the magic. It's great. The third book that came out, uh, I started, I was actually writing it at the very beginning of the pandemic. I took it's the day before we go into lockdown and I'm going through the grocery store trying to find what I need for my two weeks in lockdown. Yeah, right. And, yeah. and so the this, paper. <laughs> this these uh, little pre-cut bowls of fruit are just screaming my name. It's watermelon. I'm like, you know what? I need watermelon. Yeah, yeah, I need watermelon. I don't need water. You know, it's March. But watermelon, watermelon does, <laughs> is not going to taste like watermelon at this point. And so I run home and I tear the lid off. I grab a bite of watermelon and it tastes like styrofoam. So disappointed because all I wanted was that that sweet, wet, right, juicy. Yeah. I said, okay, you know, I'm I'm writing this book on uh, potions. Botanical brews is a potions book. Say, so I'm going to jump into this. I'm going to try and make a shrub. A shrub is a drinking vinegar. It's a syrup. It's a way to preserve your fruit, and make it last longer. And I make um, fruit sodas with them. Really lovely. And so wow. I, I'm going to try this watermelon. And so I grab a prosecco vinegar, light and crisp and sweet. And the, the watermelon, and I make this beautiful, beautiful shrub. All of the flavor that was missing, missing from that fruit is actually hiding inside. The vinegar just let it all out into the syrup. So I actually had a beautiful watermelon soda uh, that was incredible. And all that flavor had just been hiding. Yeah. I, I'm coming over to your kitchen. Let's just be clear. Right? Like I'm, I'm beelining it. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, grabbing a straw and, um, a fork because I'm sure you put that stuff into food too. So, oh, yeah, you know, once I mean, we show up prepared, Sandy and I, utensils in hand. Actually, Victoria is the one that shows up with utensils. I'm usually the one cooking. <laughs> I do. It's not a lie. It's not a lie. My sister's an amazing cook, like incredible. And she's so Ma MacGyver. So it sounds like Amy, you're, you're very much the same. Right? Yeah, I'm not MacGyver. It's Amy like, is MacGyver. Okay. In the fridge are shoestrings, a battery, and a moldy lump of cheese. And here's your gourmet meal. <laughs> so, but you would, you would have to be a little bit MacGyvery, right? Um, to invent some of these brews, right? Oh, like yeah. the experimentation phase must be fun. Like it's it just so must fun. be like, hmm, a little dab of this, a little dab of that. The, one of my favorites, I took, um, I had some nectarines that were going to go bad and I could not eat all of these nectarines in the next five minutes while it was ripe. And so I grabbed uh, an apple cider vinegar and I grabbed these green cardamom pods yeah. and uh, honey instead of white sugar. And I just let them do their job. And it had the most beautiful, there's a little papery on the outside of the tongue from the green part of the cardamom pod. Right, right. The middle of the tongue is just sparking with the beautiful joy of the actual cardamom seeds. 
and the nectarines just mellowing the whole thing out. I just prepared it with a little bit of violet syrup and it yeah. made those beautiful sodas. Wow. You're like a small year. You know? yes. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> like, I want to just like go to your house just to have a lecture on what we're about to drink, you know, that's <laughs> right? a beautiful po- profile of, you know, the honeysuckle and yeah, that would be cool. That would be very cool. All right. So do you want to dive into the case and then we can sure. talk yeah. more with Amy? I'm sure our audience wants us to dive into the case too. What the hell did I just tune into? Um, (laughs) All right. So this is uh, episode 58 and we're focused on the disappearance of candy heiress, Helen Brock. Uh, And to, to this day, she is the richest woman to ever disappear in the world without a trace. The 65 year old candy company heiress was last seen alive by an independent witness on February 17th, 1977, as she was leaving the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Authorities have never been able to prove if Helen successfully returned to her Glenville, Illinois home before disappearing. An investigation into the case uncovered nefarious activities by several people that were close to the heiress, including her husband, her purported lover, and a man associated with the Chicago area horse stable owners with links to the Chicago mob. There's been no trace of Helen Brock since her disappearance 46 years ago, and to date, the case remains unsolved. Helen Marie Voorhees was born on November 10, 1911, on a small farm in Unionport, Ohio. She married her high school sweetheart in 1928 when she was just 17 years old, but the marriage was short-lived and the couple divorced by the time Helen was 21. Just after World War II, Helen was working as a coat check girl at a country club in Palm Beach, Florida, when she met Frank Brock, son of Emile J. Brock and heir to the E.J. Brock and Sons Candy Company. Emile founded Brock's Confections in 1904 when he opened a candy store in a factory in Chicago. The company is best known for its candy corn products. So Frank and Helen married in 1950 and traveled between residences in Glenville, Illinois, near their candy factory and a home they built in Fisher Island, Florida. In 1966, Frank sold the candy company to American Home Products, and thereafter, the couple spent most of their time in Florida. Frank died in 1970, leaving Helen a very wealthy widow, amounting to about $30 million in terms of her estate. An animal lover, Helen devoted much of her time actively supporting animal causes, including the endowment of the Helen B. Brock Foundation to promote animal welfare, which she established in 1974. Unfortunately, her devotion to animals and her incredible wealth may have contributed to her demise. The last day Helen was seen alive by an independent witness was on Thursday, February 17, 1977, a cold but typical Midwestern winter's day. Helen had traveled from Chicago to Rochester, Minnesota to attend a routine medical checkup. The only issue the local medical professionals identified with her was her weight. She walked back to her hotel after paying the medical bill and along the way stopped at a gift shop where she purchased $41 worth of cosmetics and towels. The gift shop assistant claims to have heard Helen declare, I'm in a hurry, my limousine, I'm sorry, I'm in a hurry, my houseman is waiting. Because Helen was presumed to be traveling alone and no one was observed with her, investigators are unsure what she meant by her statement. Despite claims by Jack Matlick, Helen's houseman and chauffeur, that he picked Helen up at O'Hare Airport following her flight home from Minnesota, the crew on the commercial airliner in which Helen was supposed to return did not report seeing her on the flight. Considering that a missing person report had had to be filed by a family member, the police were not informed about Helen's disappearance until two weeks after she was last seen on February 17, 1977. Investigators focused their attention on three primary suspects in the disappearance of Helen Brock. First up was Jack Matlick. Matlick was a longtime handyman at the Glenview Estate owned by Helen and her late husband, Frank. At the time of Helen's disappearance, Matlick had been working for the Brocks for 20 years. After Frank died in 1970, Matlick became Helen's right-hand man and confident to the point that Helen had planned to leave Matlick $50,000 upon her death. According to various police and private investigators, Helen likely got into a taxi following her Mayo Clinic appointment and headed for the local airport. Matlick claimed that after picking Helen up from O'Hare Airport, he spent much of the weekend with her in her 18-room Glenview mansion. He also claimed that he drove Helen back to O'Hare for a Monday morning flight to Florida, but Helen never arrived in Florida, and investigators could not find any record of Helen's Florida travel itinerary, nor to any other destination. Adding to their suspicions, Matlick failed a polygraph test twice when asked about Helen's whereabouts. Matlick later said that despite Helen's 
typical traveling with a lot of luggage and a meticulously thought out itinerary, he drove her to O'Hare Airport on Monday at 7 a.m. without much luggage or a flight reservation. She was also deemed a late riser who would not normally fly out so early in the morning. There is no evidence that Helen left O'Hare Airport on that day. Investigators then learned that over the course of the weekend of February 18th, friends who telephoned Helen at her Glenview home were told by Matlick that she wasn't available, and he offered a variety of conflicting excuses to each caller. Authorities also discovered that Matlick scrubbed down the maid's room in the Glenview mansion, had Helen's pink Cadillac washed inside and out, and ordered a meat grinder attachment from one of Chicago's Marshall Fields department stores. He also cashed six checks supposedly written by Helen, totaling $15,000. However, Helen's accountant later noticed that the signature on the checks were not Helen's, but oddly, experts determined that the signature was also not by Matlick's hand. Matlick's wife said he gave her a different story about Helen's disappearance. He, he told her that he did not return from the mail. I'm sorry. He told her she, Helen did not return. So embarrassing. So professional here. Um, Matlick's wife gave a different story about Helen's disappearance. He said that she did not return from the Mayo Clinic and he was waiting for her in Glenview. Matlick made arrangements that weekend in Glenview to have two rooms painted and replace the carpeting in one of Helen's rooms. Nothing unusual about the space was seen by the workers who completed the task. Matlick admitted to authorities that once it was determined that Helen had disappeared, he set about the task of burning all of Helen Brock's personal diaries, some of which contained her automatic writings. Matlick claimed Helen left clear instructions that her diaries, of which there were many, should be burned if anything happened to her. No charges have ever been filed against Matlick in connection with Helen Brock's disappearance. Still, many of those involved with the case suspect that Matlick knows more than he's saying about the missing heiress. Helen's brother, Charles Voorhees, believes that Matlick murdered his sister, and in 1993, George won his action against Matlick, which compelled Matlick to give up the $50,000 inheritance from the Brock estate and waive any future claims. Despite repeated declarations about his in innocence and angry denials to reporters that he knew what happened to Helen Brock, Matlick remains a primary suspect in the disappearance of Helen Brock. He died on February 14, 2011, in a Pennsylvania nursing home at the age of 79, likely taking to his grave the secret of how and where Helen Brock was murdered and what happened to her body. The second suspect, Richard Bailey. In the mid-1970s, Helen met Richard Bailey, owner of the Bailey Stables and Country Club Stables. He was a charming con man who targeted wealthy middle-aged or older women who had recently been widowed or divorced to defraud them of their money through poor horse investments. Bailey's con succeeded by identifying targets that had little to no knowledge of the horse business. Helen was the perfect patsy a wealthy, recently widowed animal lover. So in 1975, Bailey's brother, Paul, sold three horses to Helen for $98,000. However, unbeknownst to Helen, Bailey not only participated in the sale, but the horses were worth less than $20,000. Helen also purchased a group of expensive brood mares, bringing her total investment to $200,000. Shortly before her disappearance in early 1977, Bailey arranged an extensive horse showing for Helen in hopes of persuading her to invest an additional $150,000 to purchase more horses. However, Helen grew suspicious of Bailey's motives when an independent appraiser recommended that Helen invest nothing in training one of the original horses that she had purchased from Paul Bailey, which was contrary to the $50,000 estimate provided by a trainer recommended by Bailey. Realizing that she had been cheated, some speculated that Helen had planned to sue Bailey. While Helen never got to follow through on her threat before her disappearance, the law enforcement theory that Bailey had Helen killed when she threatened to blow up the blow the whistle on his horse fraud led to a 1989 investigation that resulted in Bailey being charged with conspiring with several others, all named but not charged, to kill Helen Brock. While Bailey was not convicted of Helen's murder, he was convicted of racketeering and sentenced to 30 years for defrauding the heiress. The sentencing judge made it clear that Bailey's prison time reflected evidence of his involvement in the conspiracy to murder Helen Brock. On March 21st, 2005, in a tersely worded two-paragraph opinion, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals rejected Bailey's request for a new sentencing hearing for the fraud charges to consider new evidence suggesting his innocence in the murder conspiracy, saying that the new evidence does not establish by clear and convincing evidence that the defendant is actually innocent of conspiring to murder Helen Brock and soliciting her murder. Bailey was released from a Florida federal prison on July 25th, 2019, at the age of 89. In 2022, he released a book titled Golden Tongue, The Innocent Man That Killed Her. 
In his autobiography, Bailey paints a different picture of himself, claiming that he was a sweet talker who fell in love with Helen Brock and that he had nothing to do with the disappearance or murder of his lover. To back up his claim, Bailey points to a 2010 lie detector test that suggests he's innocent of the crime he's accused of. Bailey has promised to donate any proceeds from his autobiography to a Helen Brock animal welfare fund because that is what the love of his life would have wanted. The third suspect is Silas Jane. A former federal investigator believes that Helen Brock was the victim of a sinister horse mafia that operated for decades in the Chicagoland area. The crime family was led by Silas Jane. Silas and his younger brothers DeForest and Frank and half-brother George were skilled horse trainers and riders who owned and operated several stables in the Chicago area, as well as a livestock hauling and trading business in Woodstock, Illinois. Silas Jane had a well-known reputation for bullying behavior, which enabled him to demand a 10% stake of the profits in horse shows held near Chicago. He also sold virtually worthless horses to prosperous men with teenage daughters after convincing each buyer that the top quality horses were required to support quests to become champion riders. When fathers complained about the poor quality of the horses that they had purchased, Silas would tell them that their daughters had a reputation for promiscuity among his employees. Though the accusation may have been groundless, scandal-wary fathers rarely pressed the point. By the mid-1950s, Silas Jane wanted his half-brother George to purchase his green tree stables, but George, whose sportsman riding stables was prospering, refused. That refusal set off a 25-year feud that ended in the October 1970 cold-blooded murder of George on the order of his half-brother Silas. Silas Jane, along with two other conspirators, were tried for murder in April of 1973. Julius Barnes was convicted in the murder of George Jane. Silas and Joseph LaPlaca each received a sentence of six to 20 years, the maximum under Illinois law for conspiracy to murder. Silas Jane was paroled on May 23, 1979, after having served six years. In 2005, investigators revealed that Joseph Clemens, a horseman who had known Helen, had come forward with information about Helen's alleged murder. Clemens stated that the elderly heiress was beaten, shot point blank, and her body was disposed of in a blast furnace in a steel mill off of Interstate 65, close to Gary, Indiana. Clemens claimed 10 other people were involved in Helen's kidnapping and murder, which was ordered by Silas Jane and his nephew, Frank Jane Jr., so she would not report to the police about being duped in the shady horse dealings that included a major insurance fraud scheme. Authorities were able to confirm that Helen Brock had purchased horses from a stable in which Silas Jane had a business interest and that she was unhappy with the transaction and had threatened to draw police attention to the deal. After agreeing to a plea deal that would protect him from legal action, Clemens confessed to being the shooter and named nine of the 10 culprits, one of which was Jack Matlick. According to Clemens, a ruby ring belonging to Helen slipped from her finger when he was getting rid of her body. Clemens provided the ring to the police to back his statement of events. Friends and family members have confirmed that the ruby ring did in fact belong to Helen Brock. Over time, Plemons gave conflicting accounts of his role in Helen's death and later claimed that Kenneth Hansen, a longtime enforcer that worked for Silas Jane, was responsible for Helen's murder. Plemons also made a statement to police that Richard Bailey was not involved in the Brock homicide, which prompted Bailey to request a new sentencing hearing. However, as previously noted, the court dismissed his appeal, concluding that Plemons' statement did not disprove Bailey's involvement in Helen's murder. Silas Jane died of leukemia in 1987 at the age of 80. A year later in 1988, an ex-con and former cellmate of Silas Jane, Maurice Ferguson, gave a statement to authorities claiming that Silas Jane had ordered the execution of the candy lady. Ferguson told authorities that after he was paroled in 1979, he removed a woman's remains from a Morton Grove stable at Jane's behest and buried them in Minnesota. Ferguson told authorities that Jane offered him money to remove the body and bury it at a place of his choosing. Ferguson claimed that he chose the Minneapolis area as the spot for burial because his sister lives in that city. Ferguson told authorities he was willing to lead them to the actual site of the body because Jane, now deceased, was no longer a threat. Ferguson led authorities on three separate searches for Helen's body, but no evidence was ever recovered. Charles Voorhees, Helen's brother doubts Ferguson's story and suspects that the ex-con is hoping to get the reward money of $250,000 offered by the Brock estate for information leading to the whereabouts of Helen's body. Helen Brock was declared legally dead on May in May of 1984, which paved the way for her then $40 million estate to be distributed. 
Her brother Charles was issued half a million dollars, and the remaining funds were allocated to operating her Helen V. Brock Foundation that supports various animal welfare charities. In December of 2022, the Northwest suburb, Suburban Glen Grove Equestrian Center was bulldozed to make way for a new center, sparking renewed interest in the Helen Brock case, as some insiders believe the Equestrian Center, which was under construction, including the pouring of fresh concrete at the time of Helen's disappearance, could be a prime burial spot. This center was investigated by authorities as part of the Chicago Horse Mafia insurance fraud case. However, federal prosecutor Stephen Miller said she could be buried anywhere. The most likely burial site, if there is one, would be a place with ties to the equestrian community in the greater Chicagoland area. To this day, Helen's brother, Charles, believes that Jack Matlick was responsible for the disappearance and death of his sister, Helen, and that he acted alone. 46 years later, the case remains open and investigators ask anyone with information to contact the Glenview police. My sources for this story include Wikipedia, Helen Brock, Wikipedia, Silas Jane, People Magazine, whoever knows the fate of Candy Eris Helen Brock is, a, is as quiet as her empty grave by Barbara Kleben, May 28, 1984. The Chicago Tribune, Search for Brock Body, Moving to Minnesota by John O'Brien and Robert Enstead, January 6, 1988. I-Team, Prisoner Richard Bailey claims he was in love with Missing Eris Helen Brock by ABC 7 Chicago, May 15, 2013. The Daily Mail, cold case solved after 37 years, missing Candy Eris was kidnapped, beaten, shot, and disposed of in a steel furnace on orders from a notorious Chicago land horse dealer by John Breslin, January 8, 2015. ABC7 I-Team investigation, Helen Brock case, Richard Bailey sentenced in 1977, disappearance of Chicago Candy Eris, released from prison by Chuck Goody, July 26, 2019, and CBS News Chicago, site of bulldozed equestrian center could be prime burial site for Eris, Helen Brock by Chris Ty, December 15th, 2022. So ladies, very excited to hear both of your perspectives on this interesting case. Yeah, I, so when you were first telling me about the case, I definitely felt she was killed in Minnesota. I don't think she ever made it back to Illinois. I doubt highly the story about the 10 men involved in her murder they beat her and then shot her point blank. The woman's 70 years old. Like no one's going to beat up a 70 year old woman and then shoot her. Like the, what fight could she put up? Right. So um, I had said to you, Sans, I said, I feel like she's buried in the woods. Like she was taken out to the woods and buried in the woods. Um, and it's just interesting um, that uh, who's the cellmate? The cellmate. One sec. Uh, that was Ferguson. Ferguson, yeah, yeah. Um, claims to have taken her to Minnesota and buried her. I wonder if any of those burial sites that he claimed to take authorities to were in the woods, because I always felt that she was murdered in the woods and then basically just left there. And I asked you, I remember when we were talking, I said, was it cold out? Because I just kept seeing snow everywhere. And you said, yeah, so it was February. Yes. Um, I don't know why Bailey... Um, I'm sorry, Malik, right? The housemate or the yes, house? The houseman. Mm-hmm. Houseman. Malik. I don't know why he did what he did with her car and did what he did with the rooms. That seems really odd to me. I do think that there were more, there was more than one person involved. I think there were three. Um, so it could have been uh, part of the horse mafia thing. I mean, you know, that, that sounds pretty ruthless and cutthroat. Um, but, you know, I will tell you that I have a, a, one of my dearest friends in the world is worth a lot, a lot, a lot of money. You'd never know it. You would never know it because she's one of the most down to down to earth people you've ever met, but she is constantly, constantly taken advantage of by men who are aware of her bottom line. And like, she's savvy, you know, she cuts it off at the pass, but I'm astonished, like uh, this weekend I hung out with her and I was just astonished at this story of this guy that she hired to take care of a property and was paying him very good money. And he did nothing, nothing but steal from her. And it's like that it happens to her over and over and over again. It's almost like when a woman has a lot of money, it's an affront to men who then try and find a way to get it from her, you know? Um, drives me crazy. Go ahead, Amy. Do you have a, I thought you had a comment. Do you have a comment? I I agree. I mean, when you're talking about, uh, working with people with large sums of money, it's ridiculous 
how when men do it, they think that they're, they, there's some genius who wants to come up with this and they earned it and then they've worked for it and they, yeah. they deserve it. But when a woman, yeah. when a woman has it, she must have slept with someone or done something. Right. They couldn't possibly have the, the savvy that a man does. And it's, exactly. It's so exactly. And she's actually one of the most um, savvy business people I've ever met in my life. Like that woman could turn a nickel into a million dollars like that. She just has this idea for, you know, like, oh, here's a money-making idea. And it, it always is. So she's, she's really, really bright that way, but it's just constantly, she's constantly fending off these sociopaths, basically, you know, coming after her. Uh, and it's, it upsets me because I love and adore her. Um, but it also upsets me as a woman um, to see men constantly do this. And it's almost like their personality changes. You know, it's just like what you said, where, Amy, where, you know, when a man does it, it's his accomplishment. But when a woman does it, it's not her accomplishment. It has to have been given to her. Therefore, mm -hmm. it's up for grabs, you know? Um, so anyway, I think that uh, Bailey was mostly responsible for this. Did he act on the orders of <clears throat> the mafia dude? Wait, Maybe. so Bailey Bailey was her lover and you think he was mainly involved? Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I don't believe Bailey was her lover at all. I, I'm not yeah. buying that. I'm not buying that at all. I don't believe he was in love with her at all. I'm, I think the houseman, whoever the houseman is. Matlick. Who was he? Matlick. Oh, Matlick. Matt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think he did it. I'm pretty convinced he did it. But I think that um, he was working with other people for it. So I don't think Bailey, like... Bailey's never struck me as someone that was involved. It just doesn't fit okay. for me. But her houseman, you feel. Yeah, was definitely was, involved. Was definitely involved. Yeah. The whole story about driving her to O'Hare. Yeah. Um, that's just bullshit. That's total bullshit. So I don't know if he met her in Minnesota, which is my thinking, because she said clearly had to, to meet the him. salesperson. Yeah, yeah she yeah. was late. So I think he drove her to the location where she was murdered. I don't know that he pulled the trigger. I don't know that he murdered her outright, but I'm, I'm convinced he was absolutely involved. Um, I just don't buy that she was incinerated in the incinerator. I don't buy that she was buried under the equestrian place. Um, I don't know why you would make the statement. She most likely was buried at a place where there were horses when she didn't, she wasn't at the time she disappeared anywhere near horses, right? Like there was, yes, she owned horses, but she wasn't near a stable. Well, that was the connection to the Chicago mafia was they yeah, were no, thinking that they, but like, they buried the her on one of their properties. She wasn't visiting horses. She wasn't around no. horses. No. So like, why does she have to be buried at an equestrian site? Like that just doesn't make sense to me. You, you go after someone when they're the most vulnerable and at an equestrian location where she's well-known, right? She's the founder, you know, people are always aware of, oh, there's Helen, right? Yeah. There's a woman with all the money that's supporting us. Um, so that doesn't make sense to me in the slightest. What does make sense is him coming back from O'Hare, stopping for gas somewhere, you know, it's, it's, you know, a decent enough drive. He must, he must have needed gas. And then, her taking one on the chin and him throwing her in the trunk explains yeah. why she had to, he had to have the the car detail right right yeah exactly yep so, so this poor but, woman yeah I totally agree what i find interesting though is that in my research which is what's available publicly and you know however thoroughly i may or may not have dug into it is Malik didn't get any money out of the deal, at least on the surface. He had to give up his claim to the $50,000 that she supposedly left him. He wrote, there were six forged checks for $15,000. So maybe somebody else paid him off. Like, I'm not sure what he gained as a result of killing Helen Brock or he arranging. Wasn't, for he wasn't killed himself. Ah. No, like, okay. okay. Yeah. For somebody like Malik, the, the promised $50,000 one in the hand versus two in the bush yeah her eventual demise i guess maybe i'll get fifty thousand dollars he he could have very easily been promised a, a more vast sum of money to, to and have them never come through with it right right makes sense okay yeah all right cool so uh and you know honestly since I, i'm sorry i don't mean to interrupt no. but you don't know what went missing right from her estate no 
So he very easily could have, there could have been petty cash around that he could have had access to. Um, the other thing that I know from my dear friend is that she's got, she owns several homes and they are beautifully appointed. And there's a lot uh, there for the taking if, you know, there was a houseman around that had nimble fingers. Um, he could have sconed with some of her jewelry. He could have, and who would know? Yeah. Right. Well, clearly he's clearly somebody took her red ruby ring. Cause that did right. turn back up. Right. Um, it's a shame. You know, yeah. She, she was just living her life. Right. And she yeah. was a kind woman. Like, yeah. This was a kind and generous woman who was trying to take care of the people that fucking murder her. Yeah. Yeah. Poor love. And her poor, her poor brother, not to get the answers, you know, after all that time, um, and but clearly he is, wanted them. But he is convinced that Matlick was responsible and that he acted yeah. alone. I believe, the, I believe the, that. Yeah. The question I've is, always believed that Matlick was integral to her disappearance and murder. Absolutely integral. Like it couldn't have been pulled off without him. Yeah, I would agree with that. And she basically. probably felt felt safe with him around. That's the thing. Yeah. You know? Well, he'd been with the family for 20 years. Yeah. You know, so he, he was like family. Yeah. What I found interesting was he had he had a different residence from the Glenview estate where he lived with his wife and mm-hmm. he gave her an excuse that he needed to stay the weekend in mm-hmm. at Glenview, which was odd, like mm-hmm. very atypical behavior. Mm-hmm. So he was obviously covering something up. The question right. is yeah. what? Yeah. Right. His involvement, as far as I can tell. Um, I don't know that Bailey was involved at all. I don't know that he wasn't involved, but I don't know that he was involved. I really believe it was a combo of Matlick and the mafia dude. Silas James. Silas. Yeah. That's what I think. It would so. give him enough time to shampoo the carpets and, ha- you know, for that way when the workmen came to replace the carpet and paint the walls, it wouldn't look like anything was amiss. But right. you couldn't, you know, say, look at a microscopic level and find blood. Right. Well, she went so, missing in the, what, 1971, Sands? 77. And it was, oh, on, a, it was on February 17th, which I think was a Thursday. Um, so heading into a like DNA stuff going yeah. on in the mid seventies. It, it took two weeks before it was officially reported that she was missing. And he claimed yeah. it was because it had to be made by his, her brother. Bullshit. And he, he thought she was, you know, Matlick thought that Helen was in Florida and therefore Bullshit. no reason to alert anybody to Helen's. Right. See, and that's the other thing. That's the other thing that really doesn't fit. You own this huge estate. You're not in contact with your staff yeah. for two weeks. Yeah. Right. Like it, it, none of it makes sense. None of it. Poor so excuses. I'm sure she was, I'm sure she had pets that needed looking after at the primary estate in Illinois. So you're telling me that she's not in contact with her houseman about the pets. Yeah. She's, uh, she's an animal. Like none of it makes sense. Well, why isn't anybody checking on where she is in Florida? You know, exactly. That's where she traveled to. Yeah, so. exactly. You know, did you make it safe and sound? Did you get to where you were going? Because this is one of the wealthiest women in the world and she's traveling to Florida, presumably alone. Yeah. And the fact that no one on the plane from Minnesota to O'Hare remember seeing her, no one on the plane to Florida remember seeing her. I'm sorry, but rich people stand out. So, yeah. And plus <laughs> he claimed that she wasn't taking much luggage, which also was yeah. just not, Bullshit. not yeah. true. Yeah. She didn't have much luggage and you still didn't hear from her for two weeks. Like, yeah. 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 So none of it makes sense. So they could have all been involved, honestly, like all of them could have been involved in some way. I don't think that 10 men pounced on her and beat her and shot her point blank. I think that's really hyperbolic. Um, That is, that's so overkill that it it's, I don't, I just don't see it. I really don't see it because someone who, like if you're dealing with a violent mob, right? When you do something like that, that's to send a message. Yeah. And what message would you be sending about Helen Brock that she had, she was aware that she was being cheated, you know, like who wasn't, there were all those men with daughters, wealthy daughters that were aware that they were being cheated. Yeah. So it was was a scam that had continued on and on and on. So she's really not much of a threat, you know? So why the overkill? Like that doesn't make sense to me in the slightest. So, and you don't need to beat 
a 70 year old woman. You just don't need to. Who's, you know, struggling with her weight probably wasn't that mobile, you know, like, no, no, no. So none of it makes sense, but I'm so, glad, I'm glad at least some of them saw time. Like I'm glad about yeah. that. Yeah. So. The one that didn't was Malik, unfortunately. Well, he didn't get any money out of the deal. So that we know about. Yeah. Right. Right. I'd be interested to find out how the ruby turned up. Yeah. Like it just it just showing back up is is very suspect. Right. Yeah. That's, Plem- super, that, that's super interesting. Yeah. Plemons claimed that it fell off her finger when he was getting rid of her body. So maybe it did fall off his her finger and maybe somehow Plemons came came into into possession of it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Yeah. It is her it is her ring. That's yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And the checks that were written were not in Matlick's handwriting. I I think it was his wife's. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it needed to be feminine mm-hmm. to be believable. So that's why her story conflicts with his too. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to cover something up. Yep. So so any any thoughts amy on how to if you're in the back of a car being driven by somebody which is common these days and from an uber perspective and you know you're in trouble any suggestions on how to get out of that absolutely uh after i think it was 1978 they installed latches on the interior of the trunk with a latch release in case someone gets trapped in there ostensibly you know a kid playing hide and seek crawls in the back of a trunk you can actually pull in there to get out um as a part of my uh, classes that I teach executive defense for women, making sure that they're safe and controlled and everything knows, you know, self-defense against kidnapping for motor, business people who are traveling internationally. The, um, this is a rough statistic, but the kidnapping capital of the United States is Phoenix, Arizona. Um, is in Arizona? Phoenix, Arizona. Really? Um, oh, yes. And internationally is Mexico City in Mexico. Exactly. Well, that's not a surprise. No. <laughs> yeah. So making sure that you're being as safe as you can internationally traveling is really important. So we'll teach self-defense classes for women at the very end of the class. We will handcuff them and put them in the trunk and have them get out. Come on. Oh my God. Yes. H- handcuff behind their back or, or. Uh, depend the, the first time you can do it in front. The second time you do it in back. Um, there's the and you give them the tools though to get out of yes yes we've gone through through a weekend of training we've made sure that everyone's careful and and make sure we all we have the whole classes standing here waiting for you to get out and applaud when you get out (laughs) but the biggest and the most dangerous thing is overcoming that moment of panic when the lid closes yeah yeah so by having gone through it and having done it you don't have that that moment of panic you've already gone through that your brain knows okay we've done this this is old hat yeah. There's a couple different tools. We teach them. First of all, this is a handcuff key bracelet. You can easy, so cool. easily wear that. Uh, the bead on the end here is a titanium bead. It's actually the, the striker ball from like a Zippo style lighter. Hmm. So you just stretch your bracelet, pull it back and give it a, let it go. And then it'll shatter a car window. Wow. So you have, besides, you have to put your hand up against it and then, yeah. Yep. Yeah, just okay. give it a, give it a go. The bead is titanium so it's actually much much harder than the glass and the striations on there actually give it a little cut as it's penetrating the glass so the sides and the rear window of a car shattered it won't shatter the windshield because there it's got a higher temperature rating but easy peasy is something you can carry on your your wrist you can wear it with you everywhere you go yeah uh, it must be good easier. like if the car goes into water right yes and because waiting for the car to fill up with water before the pressure equalizes and you can break a window has got to be like the most panic stricken couple of minutes. I can't even imagine. Absolutely. So. Because one of the things that we have to overcome is what happens when the, when we hit the water, the electricity right. guys, yeah. yeah. Electricity and water are not down. friends. <laughs> yeah. So you have to wait for that pressure to equalize so you can actually get out. You can't right. open the door. You can't make sure that right. you can get through there. So this way you can shatter that car window when it's underwater. Right. You're not going to the resistance from your hand is not going to be able to punch the glass hard enough to break it. Right. So having tools to escape that water is going to be a very, very important thing. So this is something you can wear on your wrist, keep it on you at all times. And it's, you know, they're, I think $18 on the website. Cool. So 
if you're in the trunk, especially in the older models before they installed those latches, the um, sockets for the actual lights for where the turn signals are, are still inside the housing. So you can actually pop those windows out and you can stick your hand out the tailgate and wave for somebody to help you get, you know, call the police, get you pulled over and, and rescued. The latches on the inside of the gate, even if they're, even if the handle has been removed, that latch still is going to exist. Oh, so, so you exactly. just have to find the latches attached to what, a, a wire or what's it attached to? It's a wire that's attached to usually a T handle for you can grab so you can just pull the, the latch. Yeah. But even if they were to cut that and say they, they plans to steal you and this is, this is their escape plan, that latch is still going to exist. So you're still going to be able to reach your hand inside and figure out where that attachment point is and pop the lock so you can get out. And this is all done in the dark, basically, because in a trunk, when it's closed, there's no light, obviously. Right, obviously. Uh, the most common way that people are absconded with, I try not to use the, the, word, the word kidnapping. Um, one of the most commonly found ways of doing this is people are found with their hands and their feet duct taped together. So I always make sure that we, we practice this over and over again so people know that they're, they, they can overcome that because... We have this idea that duct tape is some insurmountable obstacle that is <laughs> never going to be overcome, but you still tear it off the roll. Yeah. You can tear it with your fingers. You don't even need scissors. All you have to do is create that same angle that you create when you're tearing something to get out of that. How do we do that? Well, your hands are duct taped together. Bring your hands up over your head and bring them down over your hips as hard and fast as you can. And it just pops right out. You're just creating that same angle. You're not bleeding. There's no blood. There's not... It just pops right open. Just take it off and run away. Your hands and feet are duct taped together. Okay, so we, we got out of our hands. Now our, now our legs are duct taped together. So you take that same angle, taking our little wedge here that we've created with our hands and stick that in between your legs. And it's, that'll actually tear through the duct tape itself. You don't need scissors. You don't need so you a knife. Point, so you point your fingernails your hands in between at those the... Two feet. Okay. And then... Okay. Yep, comes okay. right out. Okay. Um, say that. Say it was chains instead. Neatest thing. You can just wiggle out a, a pair of leggings while your chain, legs are still chained together. Uh, the the texture actually allows yourself a little bit of leg room to work with. Uh, where somebody use chains instead of handcuffs. Okay, just hand them to your with your hands crossed instead of our duct tape example because this. Oh yes, here here, Mr. Bad Guy. Here are my hands. Once you rotate around, this gives you just a little bit of slack to work with. Yeah. And instead of trying to break out of it because it's it's metal, it's not going to do that. Rope is the same way. Stick your hands out in front of you and rub back and forth this way. What this does is inches the chains off of your hands. Uh, ropes does, rope works exactly the same way. People think, oh, I'm going to wrap around and then I'm going to go in the middle and yeah, absolutely not. Just you, just, you have, rub just your have hands to know together. What you're doing. You just have the biggest thing is to take that moment, take a deep breath, and center yourself before moving forward. Because just that little bit of panic tells our brain, "Give up! You're never going to get out of here." That's the one thing we can't do. We can never, ever, ever give up. Right. If well, you had the option going into it, don't go to the second location. That's, Fight, that's scream, I was just going to say that because we're told over and over and again, don't go to a second location. No one willingly goes to a second location, right? When we're take when we're in the car and being taken to a second location, we know we're done. Like that's it, that we're done. And so trying to work through that panic that's coming with, okay, I'm about to die. You know, how can I figure, how can I get out of this, right? Being dragged to a second location. Um, so you're not usually tossed in the back seat if you're taken to a second location, you're usually tossed in the trunk. Mm -hmm. uh, if they're using zip ties instead of the handcuffs, chains, et cetera, you can actually tighten, make sure the lock is pointing up between your hands, tighten it as far as you can, and then do the same motion down and uh, hard over your hips and it'll pop the, the zip tie open. It so is, how do you make sure that the lock is, uh, do you just like with your teeth? Yes. Pull with it? your teeth, pull it so that okay. the lock is between your two hands. If it's okay. facing the bottom, it's just going to reinforce it when you push down on it. And so we're, gotcha. we're rotating gotcha. as best we can. Gotcha. Is it tight and uncomfortable? Probably. Okay. Is that better than dying? Absolutely. Yeah. 
So the other option, if they're using the extra strength, durable police issues at ties, your shoelaces are your next best friend. So you take your shoelaces, untie your shoes, thread the string in between the zip tied hands, tie those strings together, give it a little knot, lean back and bicycle your feet and it'll be, act as a saw to cut through the zip ties on your hands. Oh, interesting. So friction is a beautiful thing. So yeah. you're actually, um, if you're worried about the integrity of your tennis shoelaces, um, you can replace them with paracord shoelaces. Paracord, is, uh, especially like the 550, has a thousand pound test. Wow. There's no way you can bicycle through that paracord before you're going to get through zip ties. Wow. So each of those escapes is going to be the most important thing. Just calm down, take a deep breath and find a solution to the problem. Yeah. So, so I want to do an escape room with you, Amy. That's yeah. Let's do it. Fun. <laughs> so if you've got your hands bound behind your back, you've got to get them in front, right? Depending on the binding. Um, again, if you're doing zip ties or duct tape, while they're bound behind you, stretch your arms out as far behind you as you can, and then slam them down over your bottom as hard as you can. Again, okay. it will break that link. If it's a zip tie, instead of having the, the zip tie knot or lock pointing up, we'd have it pointing down or having it point away from us in both scenarios. That way, when you bring it down over your bottom as hard as you can, it'll pop that lock open. Gotcha. So oh, if she was taken from inside the house or say she was in a hotel room, uh, they actually make something called a portable door lock. Looks something like this. Comes in two pieces. It's steel. Actually really lovely. We have the commercial side. So if you were in a hotel room or the residential side, if you were staying in, say she was feeling a little nervous in her house, you can actually put this in between the door jam and the door. So it fits inside the little hole for the door latch. You close the door. Perfect. So that's hidden. What you do next is you take there's a little bead here. Again, this is steel and place it inside the little heart-shaped hole closest to your door. And what that does is it locks the door in place. So even if you have a key, you cannot get through this. This is actually preventing you from opening that door. It's steel. You'd have to kick the, the whole door in to get past this. So if you live in a dorm, if you have a skeezy landlord, any of those things, they're Airbnb. always- You're renting a, an Airbnb. Yeah, absolutely mm -hmm. perfect. I keep one in my luggage. So anytime I go away on vacation, anytime I go um, to a book signing, do a conference, a festival, this lives in my suitcase. So I make sure that, you know, Does I get close through the door. security. Does that get yeah. through security? Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. It stays right in my, in my suitcase. It's not a weapon. It's just, they mm -hmm. know that it's metal. So they, sometimes they'll, they'll open up the luggage and they'll look at it. Oh, it's, it's just a door lock. It's, they're sold as a portable door lock. They cost you again, about 15, $20. And it comes a little drawstring pouch. It's easy to keep in there with my luggage. And I know that I'm secure once I close that door. Oh, cool. So cool. Wow. So is it better to fight or is it better like to go limp? Because Depending limp on the situation. Okay. So um, if you are approached on the street and someone wants you to get in the car that's going mm -hmm. to a second location we're not doing it fight scream tear bite claw do anything you are going to have to kill me here in the street i'm sorry i'm not going to wherever the second location mm -hmm. is for whatever mm -hmm. worse awful thing is going to happen to me there mm -hmm. we're not doing it mm -hmm. if you have been kidnapped because she's got money and people are waiting for a ransom that's a completely different story um it's going to depend on a couple of factors one are they showing your fa their faces? If they show you their faces, done. done. Yeah. Game over. There's no, there's, you're going to have to escape. You're going to have to be responsible for your own safety and get the hell out. Because 60% of kidnapping victims, even after the ransom is paid, they're still killed. Oh, 60%. Oh my God. It's, it's a horrifying statistic. So Jesus. making sure that you can get out is going to be your best bet. So mm -hmm. always downplay your strengths very mute, very subtle, very silent, um, appealing, whatever you have to do, because you want them to not take you seriously as a threat. Gotcha. Keep that, keep that safety in reserve for later, because okay. they're going to need that. You're going to need that element of surprise because if they're coming to kill you, you don't want them to show your, you don't want to show your true speed right at the beginning, build up their security protocols to meet where they think that threat level is. 
unfortunately, when we're in, in times of stress like this, we don't rise to our best level of training. We fall to the lowest level of our training. So having someone hand me a, a handcuff key bracelet in a talk isn't the same as jumping in a trunk with my hands tied and, and having to figure my way out. Will this open a handcuff? Absolutely. But we also teach you how to pick the lock, how to shim the lock, and what improvised tools you might have to do it with. So with, these are just police, police issue handcuffs. You, we're all familiar with that sound, that ratcheting sound you see here on the police shows all the time. Like, okay, we know these are locked. But this is just a mechanism. It's not magic. Those teeth are being held in place by a very small mechanism right here. So if you can get something in between those teeth, like a small shim, you can actually just open it right up. Wow. Easy. My favorite tool for that is one of those little alligator barrettes that you used to clip closed, hold back your little baby hairs. The very center of that is a very small, thin, flexible piece of metal. Yeah. So in classes, we bend that out and you have it. We'll actually keep in our wallets a little alligator clip. So you can pull it out of your back pocket, break off the little piece and slide it in between those teeth and the, key, the teeth just open right up. Wow. For improvised tools, um, I actually used a piece of a windshield wiper blade as we were going through the um, parking lot to get to the abductee car, just peeled off a little piece of someone's uh, windshield wiper blade and, and had it palmed in my hand. Wow. So you use what's available. Use what's available. Yeah. But that's where the small. MacGyver part comes in. Yeah. Think small. Interesting. That's so when fascinating. You're, when you're in the airport, you can't have you know, 37 guns and knives and, and pokey things on you. Right. What you can have, things like tactical pens. They're aircraft aluminum. They're, they can be used as a tool, but everybody knows that pens are allowed in courthouses and airports and all sorts of beautiful places. It's also a great defensive tool. So what are they called? Tactical pens? Tactical pens, yes. So again, aircraft aluminum, they come with different ones. One has a handcuff key embedded in the lid. One has a glass breaker. One, they, there are all sorts of different varieties that are out there. Um, Uzi, the, the firearms manufacturer, used to make one with a crenellated bezel on it. We, all, we lovingly refer to it as a DNA sampler. <laughs> it's all about what you can find around you. I yeah. can have my laptop bag in an airport. Those little charger cubes that are attached to my, my MacBook Air makes a great flail. No one's going to come at you if you're winging it at them. Oh my God. Um, the first thing I do when I get to an airport is I stop and I hit the newsstand and I grab a magazine. Oh, I might need something to read on the plane. Or it makes a great baton. You just curl it up really tightly. Right. If I carried electrical tape with me, I might reinforce my little baton. Makes yeah. a great defensive or offensive tool. Right, right. Or like if someone's got a knife, you can wrap that around your arm. Absolutely. Yeah. Fend off the blade. It's all about being that prepared state of mind. So, Amy, are you still are you teaching? The, are you actively teaching these classes? Because, like, yeah. I want to send Sandy and I. It's been so much fun. Um, I started it for uh, Happy Birthday, Sandy! Surprise! Birthday. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna go see Amy. It's fabulous because here's I started... your trunk. Happy birthday. <laughs> Somebody help me. Make it out of here and we'll blow you, Viewers, help me. Viewers, <laughs> any viewers. Nothing says happy birthday like absconding with your sister in you a trunk. You see of what a I car. live with? Okay. Y'all see what I live with? This. <laughs> this. You know, I'm always looking for ways to murder people. Right? I know. And this cause is, harm. And, and, and now you're have... dragging me into it. This is not yes, good. Yes. Okay. So much fun. So, Who's anyway, so tell us about the classes. And so I started um, uh, learning martial arts at, out of high school. I was concerned. I, I was getting death threats for being a witch in a rural county. And so I started martial arts lessons. And on my own, my, my parents were very much against this. So I got my license and I got a job to pay for martial arts classes. And that was great. I wanted to move into security. The pieces of that were when uh, in 2010, I actually became a certified firearms instructor. and. Uh, the same time I took a class called Refuse Everybody, to be a Victim. Badass. Badass. 
So it was really important to me to not only teach uh, women's self-defense classes, but once I was able to add in the refuse to be a victim portion and the the certified firearms instructor portion, like the the development of that brand, I I guess, became even more paramount to make sure that uh, I, I teach free classes for women who have a protective order against a spouse, a boyfriend, a person, you know, you've, you've got your protective order. Like that's good. We all know someone who's got one of those. Like that's the real tragedies. We literally all, all know someone like that. It's criminal. So Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll go to courts with victims of domestic violence who need an escort. Mm -hmm. Each of those pieces and parts is just one part of that application. So making sure that we have the ability to make sure that we're taken care of and that we're, we're as safe as we can be. Right. Um, a lot of, so can people uh, sign up for your classes? Are you offering them now or you're not offering them now? I haven't since the pandemic, but I need to go back to it because I really miss okay. it. Uh, so, I, so when you do, because we're going to have you on again and again and again. Um, so when you do, we'll make an announcement and we'll have a sign up link on, on our podcast so people can sign up for them and you just have to reserve two slots for me and Sandy. No, no filming of Victoria or myself. <laughs> no, in the no, process. Of not. <laughs> I, I'm not going to agree to that. There's no way I'm agreeing to that. I'm not have going. IPhone, have my phone. <laughs> we'll record. <laughs> this is Sandy getting out of handcuffs. This okay, is Sandy you know getting what? out Let's of the trunk move of a on, car. Shall we? So next week and continuing our series this about is the, the rich car and famous. I'm pushing into the river to see if Sandy can get out. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amy, for <laughs> participating in today's podcast. It was a real treat to have a guest. Loved having you. Loved Great having you. Again. Yes. And um, Victoria, thank you for your, your insights on what happened to poor Helen Brock. Thank um, you for writing it. Up. I imagine that our audience has learned a tremendous amount today, yeah. mostly of things that I'm glad they've learned about, some of which I'm not, but that's okay. <laughs> I think what we should do is... So do you sell all the little gadgets that you have on your on your website or do you get them in various locations? I think that I should have them on the website. That way people can find them. Oh, that's fantastic. So we'll put in a link um, to purchase the gadgets. So I am already adding to cart. <laughs> Perfect. So <laughs> my reputation okay. remains add to cart, add to cart. So yeah. All right, super. So uh, our next episode will continue our journey down the rich and famous. Uh, and I haven't quite decided, but if anybody has any suggestions, feel free to post to Victoria Laurie's uh, Facebook page or uh, leave us a comment um, in the comment section for our podcast. Thank you everyone so very much for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about Victoria, you can find out at victorialaurie.com. Um, so if you want to book an appointment for a session or um, learn more about my books or more about this podcast um, or my Patreon page or whatever the hell I'm into tomorrow, uh, visit www.victorialory.com. And for Amy, you can get the first 50 pages of any of my books for free to download at amyblackthorn.com. And if you'd like to check out my teas or autographed copies of my books, you can check out blackthornsbotanicals.com. Awesome. Sauce. Awesome. Thank you, ladies, for today's incredible podcast. Uh, to our listening audience, please click the like button, leave us a review, leave us a comment, subscribe. leave us 50,000 stars, whatever it is, subscribe to our channel. Uh, <laughs> we always love hearing from you and genuinely appreciate the comments and the feedback. Right? Till next time. Thank you very much. See y'all soon. Bye. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Love you.